about eight weeks ago, I got an email from somebody who said, I read your boy crisis book. It was really helpful to me. As a result of that, I did not uh, kill myself and I did not do the mass shooting I was planning to do. I wrote a 52-page manifesto about the mass shooting I was planning, but I was brought up by a mom and I was brought up by two aunts and a grandmother and none of them had any men in their lives and I had no man in my life. He hated his mom and by extension, he hated all women. And so he then ended up getting involved with 4chan and 8chan, which are basically neo-fascist type of groups. In 8chan, two of those people in 8chan have already committed major mass shootings. And I said, well, what attracted you to 4chan and 8chan? And he said, now in retrospect, after I read The Boy Crisis, what I'm seeing is that I had no structure. I had no father figure. I had no sense of purpose. Well, look at this. You saved lives, Warren. I mean, it's tragic that it has come to that where your book about uh, the crisis among boys might have spoken to someone and I kept them from doing something terrible. One of the things that I've found about angry men or angry women in the couples communication workshop, anger is vulnerabilities mask. Most every time you see somebody that is angry, you can ask a different question. How are they hurt? What is their vulnerability? And if you ask that question, you begin to listen to their pain. And when you listen to their pain, don't argue with them about their pain, but just let them know what you hear that they said, and you will see an enormous reduction in their anger. That's the way to deal with angry people, not by making them into horrible human beings that you hate, because hate met by hate only increases hate. This week on Forward, the author of The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It, Dr. Warren Farrell. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the author of The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It, Dr. Warren Farrell. Warren, thank you so much. I am just looking so forward to talking with you. So you came to this work uh, by helping women, I want to say. Uh, you were working with the National Organization of Women. Uh, you were elected to the Board of Directors for their New York chapter several times. Uh, you then went to work in the uh, Obama administration on gender issues. Is that all correct? Yes. And the Obama administration reached out when they formed the Council for Women and Girls and asked me to be on their advisory board, but they ended up never creating that advisory board. And when they asked me that, I, I said, we also need a White House Council on Boys and Men. And they said, oh, well, you know, submit a proposal. So I submitted a very extensive proposal, getting experts from all over the world to contribute to it. And they never let it off the ground. We had the Boy Scouts endorsing it and ready to present it to President Obama standing outside of his office. Two minutes before the meeting, Valerie Jarrett came up and said, no, no, let's take this off the agenda and didn't allow us to present it and never did allow us to get anywhere. That is very disheartening. Um, so let's rewind a, a bit further back. How did you come to the set of issues and what did you get your PhD in? I got my PhD in political science 
And, but while I was doing my uh, dissertation, I was teaching at Rutgers University and I was so excited about the women's movement. The students told me, you know, Warren, you've got to do your dissertation and, you know, in something related to women's issues. And so I changed my dissertation topic and that led ultimately, long story short, to my getting elected to the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City and starting some 300 men's groups around the country and some 250 women's groups. Every speech I would go to, I'd pass out yellow pads, um, have people sign up for women's or men's groups. The main focus of a men's group is you must have everything be confidential. And once men trusted the confidentiality, all sorts of stories poured out of them that made me also have empathy for men. So when I started integrating the male perspective and the female perspective for my audiences, I began to notice the enthusiasm was less than it was when I was just uh, when I was only talking about the uh, women's perspective. Now, well, Warren, what's your personal family situation? Do you have kids yourself? Um, two girls, um, which is ironic, and um, and I'm, I'm married and been together with my wife for 28 years. Uh, so are. You a grandfather as well? Have your daughters had kids? I'm a grandfather of a, of a grandson, yes. You know, it kind of makes sense too, because you started down this path as a, a champion of, of women in part, probably because, you know, you had two daughters and you saw some of their experiences. And then, uh, you know, you realized that uh, that boys uh, and, and men had issues as well. Uh, it, it's quite a progression you've had. And you document some of the men's stories that opened up your sense of empathy in the book. So you and I met when you interviewed various presidential candidates in Iowa right after your book came out uh, in 2018. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so the boy crisis had just come out. And as I was mentioning to you beforehand, you were of the eight presidential candidates I interviewed. You were the only one who really knew it without my having to introduce the material. Uh, the others were, oh, interesting, or barely paid attention. And you just went right on and, you know, as if you had written the book with me. It was really very impressive. Well, I, I was aware of the problem among boys and men from the research I did in my uh, book, The War on Normal People, that came out in 2018. So you and I, I think, were mm -hmm. barking up the same tree doing research in 2017. Yes. And the numbers around boys and men I found staggeringly uh, difficult and challenging and depressing. Uh, and I believe that they were being compounded by the economic transformation of the fourth industrial revolution. The easiest example I would draw was that, look, uh, two thirds to three quarters of manufacturing workers are or were men. We eliminated five million manufacturing jobs. So that's disproportionately going to affect men, primarily in Midwestern and Southern states. Uh, if you have an extra one, two, three million unemployed men, uh, then you're going to see some serious problems arise. In lockstep with that has been a decline in marriage rates among people without college degrees nationwide. It's gone from 70% uh, in the 80s or 70s to 45% uh, today. Uh, and, and that's a number that really hurt me because getting married seems like something that a lot of people, in my mind at least when I was growing up, you kind of projected for yourself, like you thought, hey, I'm going to you know, mature, get a job, get married. So the fact that that's less than a 50-50 proposition for the majority of Americans really hurt my heart. Absolutely. Well, you said if you and I are very oriented towards solutions. So each of those fortunately has solutions. So this, in Japan, uh, about 25% of the student population um, goes to vocational school. 
the people who graduate from vocational school, which is almost all the ones that, that enter the vocational school track, 99.6% um, of them get employed. Today, we are not training boys to, for AI, for all the new um, evolution of vocations that are coming up. All of these are doable, as Japan is proving, and all of these leave boys with a sense of purpose when they graduate, and of course, girls too, but it's disproportionately boys that are dropping out of high school. And a boy that drops out of high school is more than 20% likely to be unemployed. Boys today, 66% more likely to be living in their parents' basement or living with their parents after college or after high school than we do their female counterparts. And I don't know any of my female friends or my daughters. They don't search unemployment lines and they don't search boys living at home for their future husbands. And as you said in your, your last podcast um, with Zach, when you were graduated from law school and decided not to pursue that and you, for your first two jobs, were not super successful. You didn't have that confidence inside of yourself, nor were women as interested in you. And you sort of sensed that. And it wasn't until you really succeeded and then you met Evelyn that you started to sort of feel a different type of energy that led to your marriage. The focus on vocational education, on boys achieving, these are things that allow women to look for these type of men. And when they don't find those type of men, they decide eventually to have children without being married. 50% of women under 30 who have children are not married and about 42% of women overall are not married. And marriage is not as big an issue until you look at the fact that the people, even who are living together, women who are, and men who are living together that aren't married, those relationships only last an average of two and a half to three years which then means the boy feels abandoned, doesn't have a role model. The girl doesn't have a role model. And girls and boys who don't have a father, significant father involvement, do worse on more than 70 different metrics of success and happiness um, as they're growing up. And boys more so, uh, more intensely so than girls. Yeah, that's one of the defining uh, elements of the boy crisis uh, that you outline in your book. And your book is chock full of data and statistics. Uh, as a, someone who likes that stuff, um, I found it very, very compelling. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. 
Um, so I wrote a recent op-ed in the Washington Post, and I, I laid out a bunch of facts that I thought painted a fairly uh, bleak picture where boys are more than twice as likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than girls, more than five times uh, as likely to find themselves in juvenile detention, are much less likely to graduate from high school. If they do go to college, uh, they will find themselves comprising only 40.5% of college students, which is a real minority at this point. Uh, if you don't go to college, uh, then you're struggling to find a job in this economy. Um, income for men has declined in real terms since 1990. Almost 15% of male community college students dropped out in 2020 alone, which was a, a mind-boggling stat. Uh, uh, about one-third of all men are either out of the job market or unemployed or have dropped out in some form or fashion. That number is mind-blowing. Uh, you can go down the list and see that, that there are a lot of uh, very, very tough statistics, including the fact that now uh, deaths of despair among middle-aged men are reaching record and unprecedented levels. So if, if you trace it from boyhood to manhood to adulthood to, to uh, growing up, um, it, it all looks rough. And, and to your point, that there's a circularity because uh, unfortunately, if you have men who are failing, then you have a lot of kids growing up without dads. And it turns out that having a dad uh, is a very, very positive thing for positive outcomes. I have to say, Warren, it made me feel uh, good about myself just in that I'm a dad and, you know, I'm around. I mean, I actually don't consider myself like a dad of the year candidate or anything like that. Um, and, I, you know, I feel self-conscious about that. But the 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 data shows that, well, you know, just my, my being here is like a, a huge net positive. Um, so those are some of the things that I use to outline uh, the magnitude and depth of the boy crisis. Uh, if you're trapped in an elevator with someone and they say, hey, boy crisis, like, what do you mean? What do you say to them? I say boys all around the world in all 56 of the largest developed nations are falling behind girls in every single academic subject, and especially in reading and writing. Doing well in reading and writing is the single biggest academic predictor of success. And our daughters, you know, they want to have somebody worthy of them to marry. Women are not interested in marrying men who are unemployed, who are not um, doing well educationally, who are not doing well success-wise. So this is an international phenomenon. Um, and you define in your book a number of major issues and hurdles. And one that I think a lot of people are sensing, uh, but you put a name to, is what you call the purpose void, uh, where, where boys are concerned. Describe what you mean. Yes. Um, historically speaking, um, every generation had its war. And um, during that period of time, we said to, to boys, young boys, you know, Uncle Joe there, he joined the Marines and we're really proud of him. And the boy would learn that um, if he, even though he was being criticized at home and he maybe he wasn't great at school, um, nevertheless, he could be a hero. He could really be something if he risked his life at that war. Um, so each generation trained its boys to define masculinity as risking disposability of their life. If they didn't risk disposability in, in war, then they risk disposability in a more subtle way in the workplace. What I mean by that is when men, and we often hear about the pay gap between men and women, there is actually not a pay gap between men and women per se. The pay gap is between dads and moms. Because when dads and moms become dads and moms, 
moms reduce the amount of intensity of their work uh, load outside of the home and increase the amount of intensity inside the home. And men who want to be a musician or an actor or an artist or an elementary school teacher and do something really fulfilling to them, they realize that the fulfilling occupations by and large pay less, hence starving artists. So men give up the glint in their eyes, their dream, and they go off and instead of being an elementary school teacher, they become a superintendent of schools, something along those lines. And then we as feminists were criticizing men as having the power because they were earning more money um, or they were the superintendent of schools, even though there were more women in education without realizing that that was the sacrifice that men made. It was not male privilege and male power. Men gave up their dream, the glint in their eyes, what they really wanted to do, um, to be able to do something that would lead to their children having opportunities that they didn't have. So for example, I met a cab driver. He drove 70 plus hours a week. And I asked him, you know, why do you drive that much? And he said, well, I wanted to put my daughter through college because nobody in our family has ever gone to college. And I think my daughter's pretty smart. I'm making this sacrifice so that she'll have an opportunity to be something that I would have loved to be, but I need to do the cab driving to make that happen. Well, she got into UC Santa Cruz. And he told me then when she came back from UC Santa Cruz after her first holiday, uh, she said, uh, you know, dad, I didn't realize this, but you know, you are part of the patriarchy and you are, you are really more of an oppressor. And she had all these words for me that made me feel like everything I'd done to sacrifice for the last um, you know, 20, 25, 35 years um, was a waste. And I didn't feel loved, appreciated, or heard. And so many men feel that today, but until they get into a men's group and they see that lots of other men feel the same way, they just keep those feelings to themselves and they don't articulate them to themselves. Women can't hear what men don't say. So women don't realize that they see men getting into higher positions, but they don't see the kuroshi. They don't see, which is the Japanese word for death at the desk or death from overwork. The Japanese, in fact, have a game that they play called kuroshi. And the person who um, they compete to get to the top of the, of the corporate ladder or the political ladder or the religious ladder. And the person who gets to the top of the ladder first commits suicide because the young Japanese millennials realize that men climbing to the top of the ladder is not power. It's becoming a human doing rather than becoming a human being and becoming a human being, doing what you want to do, doing what fulfills you, doing what the women's movement has taught women to do, that's power, that's real power. This is the new understanding of real power, but when that isn't understood and there aren't lots of fathers involved, this purpose void that was men's willingness to define themselves as men by being the sole breadwinner or being willing to die in war, this, the, the, we no longer need so many men to die in war and many more women are helping with the, the breadwinning. So the boys, they don't have their old senses of purpose. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. 
your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your Internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. What do you recommend as trying to fill the purpose void? Let's say that historically boys have been soldiers and uh, breadwinners is what you're suggesting. And then there's less of a need for the former and unfortunately tougher paths to the latter. Uh, so what is a possible substitute? And the first thing that came to mind for me was video games, where it's, I mean, which is not a great substitute, but it's like, you know, it's like they'll, they'll give you a, you know, digital version of certainly being a soldier or uh, breadwinner because you know you'll like earn points and uh, gold and status there's two major solutions i would say one is understanding what dads contribute to the home and to the family that moms can contribute that every single mom listening to this can do these things but dads tend to do these things these things are things like roughhousing teasing taking them on adventures um, letting them take risks, risks that aren't uh, likely to, to kill them, um, but risks that, that allow them to get lost, that allow them to make mistakes, taking them to the playground, le leaving them with other kids in the playground as opposed to sitting there constantly watching them. The child is more likely to get into a fight in the playground without the mom or dad around. But the father, when the father can process and talk with the child about, you know, well, what did you, you know, what do you, what led you to understand that you might get into a fight there? Um, you know, one of the kids there was a bully. What led you to understand that he's a bully? Well, he was drinking. He was pushing other people around. Uh, he was fouling people and, you know, doing those things. And so what could you have done that was different than what you did? Well, I guess I could have left. Yes, you could have left, but they may have, may have called me a chicken. So t talk to me about what it's like to be called a chicken and why, why are you afraid to be called a chicken and so on. And what takes more courage, giving in to being called a chicken or actually being able to walk away uh, when you're being called a chicken and not being controlled by those names. Um, and or roughhousing, for example, um, dads are far more likely than moms to roughhouse. I'm happy to say, Warren, I read a study early on that roughhousing is good for development of boys. So as a result, I mess with my boys regularly. It's good for their upbringing, it's good for their brain development, and it's also good for something that's extremely counterintuitive, which is empathy. You have two sons. If you're you know, roughhousing with both of them at the same time, maybe um, Chris will do something that is not what you want him to do. And you make it clear, probably, that you know if you continue to do that, 
there's not going to be any more roughhousing. Now your children have to decide, are they going to push the other one aside um, um, and then lose their roughhousing? And when you make it so that when they push the, somebody else aside or don't are not empathetic to the needs of their brother, uh, that that's going to be the end of the roughhousing. And when they know they're going to lose the roughhousing, that's, that's the boundary enforcement that teaches them to focus on postponed gratification, not the, not the immediate gratification of just pushing their brother out of the way, but the postponed gratification of um, getting the rough housing by not pushing their brother out of the way, which teaches them that somebody else here is important besides them. And, that, and it also teaches them the difference between assertiveness and aggressiveness. So in that process, you're teaching them postponed gratification, empathy, um, social skills, that lead them to, to doing much better at, at school. Teaching the boy postponed gratification then allows him to be able to achieve whatever new sense of purpose he wants. Now, with, with a father and mother involved, uh, one of the things that we have is a chance for, for the future is to be able to uh, do something very different than we did with boys historically. Historically, we said, you know, um, disposable at war, disposable at work. Now we can say, who are you? What makes you shine? What makes you fulfilled? What makes you feel wonderful about yourself? And if it's something like being a musician, an artist, an actor, which takes a high, only a small percentage succeed, um, helping our sons understand that you not only need the dream, so the dream is a potential new sense of purpose, but the dream becomes a great disappointment if you don't have the discipline to fulfill your dream. When boys and girls go out and they are told they're great at something, but they don't have the discipline to fulfill it, after a while, the failure that is associated with each new dream becomes so great that they're afraid to dream. And that's deeply sad. And then, and then they often turn to drugs or to drinking, or in boys' cases in particular, to suicide. So at the age of nine, boys and girls commit suicide equally. Between the ages of 10 and 14, boys' suicide rate is twice that of girls. Wow. Between, between that of 15 and 19, it's four times that of girls. And between the ages of 20 and 24, um, it is five times that of girls. The people who are most likely to commit suicide, both boys and girls, are boys and girls without dads. Um, and because oftentimes that loss of having being able to fulfill this new sense of purpose and the disappointment in oneself and the lack of discipline uh, leads to the boys and the girls feeling disappointed in themselves. And they don't have as many friends in school. They don't get as much praise from teachers or even from their parents. And they become depressed, suicidal, drinking, drugs. And as we know, uh, I, I know you know, uh, boys are more than twice as likely to, to die from opiate overdoses as, as girls are. Uh, my personal journey on this, Warren, it's interesting. I was reflecting just now where like, I, I felt this massive pressure to do something significant uh, and uh, make a certain amount of money so I could start a family at some point. Um, uh, and I discovered entrepreneurship, which, by the way, was very difficult and I flopped a couple of times. Um, but it, it really is a very good fit for this quest for purpose because you're building something, you're working with others, you're solving a problem. Uh, there were many, many times when I would go out there and do something uh, like, let's say uh, just something sprang to my mind where like I got a message from uh, 
a university in Texas saying, hey, we're looking for like a supplier of a certain type of class. And then I uh, said, oh, I could be there tomorrow. Now, was I planning on being there? Of course not. But I just like got on a plane and went out and then had a meeting and like tried to get a contract. Uh, And there there was like a sense of soldiering or adventuring in its own way where it it was like you're out there trying to conquer new ground by getting new customers or in our case, we would expand to a new market. Um, So it was an excellent fit for me. I, I, and uh, I started an organization that's trying to cultivate entrepreneurs because I, I instinctively felt like it would be a great fit for a lot of people. I dare say that that's the kind of thing that would fill a void for a lot of boys, girls, anyone, you know, anyone who wants to, to try and find some kind of purpose and significance. Now that said, um, it's extraordinarily difficult to actually start a business or enterprise organization of any kind. And so the best thing recommendation I had to a lot of folks was to join uh, an organization or company that was trying to do something interesting or significant uh, because you'll learn. I mean, what happened to me is I started a company and it failed and then I joined two startups as the lieutenant um, and then eventually became the CEO of another. Working with more experienced builders and mentors, like I got better and stronger myself. So that's what I recommended to a lot of people. But everything I'm describing is not directly accessible for the average person who's just, you know, like coming out of high school or community college or college and be like, oh, where do I find this opportunity? And then even if you did show up, that, you know, like that the company may or may not have a need for someone with, uh, you know, like like that particular profile. But that that was my vision, my hope, um, in part, I think, because I sensed this purpose void um, in myself that I managed to fill. Um, but I sensed that it would be an enormous boon if we could help fill it for others. One of the great things the women's movement has done is to sort of understand that a decent percentage of women want to have this sort of sense of purpose too. My, my wife uh, works at 60, 70 hours a week, even though she's uh, in her late 60s. And I'm trying to get her to you know slow down a little bit and not stress out so much, but she gets this enormous sense of purpose um, from, from working that hard and from you know fulfilling her clients' needs and so on. And at the same time, we have to realize both boys and girls have an enormous need to achieve, but Males have a second layer on that. We often say that you know men have a great need to do something that is significant, that proves themselves. But what very few people get is that a lot of motivation on our part as men is we what we really want is love. We know that when Lois Lane had no interest in Clark Kent, but she fell in love with Superman. So we know that when we succeed, there's much greater likelihood that a woman will be interested in us. My argument along these lines was, look, there are certain jobs that have very, very high market rewards associated with them. Let's call it being a CEO or something along those lines. Um, And so then women look up and say, hey, we should be more CEOs. And then I look at that and say, that's almost certainly correct because, uh, you know, like you, you would be great and the rest of it. Um, but there, there are, there's a significant part of me that's like, maybe we should be trying to change the entire economic system itself 
so that it, it's not just that certain types of behaviors get outsized economic rewards. And the primary challenge shouldn't be, hey, we should make the winner circle more representative. It's like, hey, maybe we should broaden what it means to be a winner. Maybe you can yeah. be a winner by, you know, being like a good person, taking care of folks like in, in your own home or in your neighborhood or community. Uh, maybe we need to uh, redefine economic success uh, in, in various ways. Um, or even success as a human, which is something that you refer to, I believe, as heroic intelligence versus health intelligence. Is that accurate? Accurate. And basically, I'm saying, uh, like with the Kuroshi example that I gave before, that you know, that climbing to the top of a ladder um, and unbecoming who you really want to be, not being that elementary school teacher, that musician, that artist, that writer. Not what did you want to be when you were a kid? Warren. Well, I, I started to stand out in writing when I was in high school, but my father made it clear when I wanted to take off instead of shelving snow, I wanted to go to the library to write a book in high school. Uh, he said, you know, first of all, Warren, you need to shovel the snow. Second, uh, second um, I just want to warn you that only about one out of 100 people who write a book even get that book published. And if you can't get a publisher, you'll ne never get a wife and you'll never have a family. Um, so he was making it clear to me, he was born in 1910, when he was 35, he'd been through two world, you know, world wars and a, and a depression. And from his perspective, life was about um, you know, making sure you were responsible, that you fulfilled obligations, and it was not about doing what you want to do. I, I wanted to be a spy like James Bond. Oh, really? If I, yeah. Yes, yes, and he, there's the ultimate hero. And, and it's a good example of heroic intelligence versus health intelligence. The average person doing what James Bond does for more than six or seven minutes is likely to be called dead <laughs> instead of going to his funeral. Back to your point. Yes, we need to redefine what it is to be a success. We can help our children define their sense of purpose and get the discipline to do that. They need father involvement because the balance between being a mother and a father creates a checks and balance parenting that leads to so many boys and girls doing so much better when they have both the discipline and the nurturance and the discipline and the nurturance back and forth. One of the things I said when I was running for president is that we should try and keep families together because two-parent families just have much better outcomes among kids. Yes. Um, I, I think I got a little bit of heat for that, even though that, that's just like a factual uh, relationship. The most important single thing for keeping families together is communication. And the single biggest Achilles heel of all human beings is our inability to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. In the last 30 years, I've been focusing on doing couples communication workshops so that I could teach people how to handle the criticisms their partner has by altering their biologically natural state of becoming defensive and creating a safe environment for their partner to say whatever was on their mind. And that keeps marriages together, not by legislation, but by communication. If you don't have marriages stay together, usually the divorces lead to the father becomes less involved uh, the mother wants the father less involved. The mother falls in love sometimes with a new man. Uh, they maybe move to a new a new place out of state. Mother often, if she fights it, she has the right to children. Oftentimes men have to fight for children and the children end up without, um, without their father in their life. What can be done as a solution to that 
is a possibility of a father warrior program where we say to men, one of your new senses of purpose is not to kill and be killed as in the past, but to love and be loved. And who needs you to love and be loved? First of all, mothers do. Single moms are overwhelmed. They're torn between their jobs and not doing that well enough and their children. And we have men out there, fathers, who have no sense of purpose, um, who are not being taught to love and be loved. And we really need to make it part of our national calling to say to men, we need you as we have in the past, but we need you to be fully involved with the children. Here are the 70 plus reasons, things that happen that are better for children when you are involved. At this point, being a man who wants to contribute to the growth of the next generation is extraordinarily high value. Uh, yeah. You know, I know there's a waiting list for months and months for someone to be a big brother or a mentor to uh, young boys who may have single moms. Um, we, we should be putting more men in position to contribute like that and frame that as like the new struggle, because right now that's not happening. And it's having disastrous effects that you and I have both documented and tried to share with the world. The most important single thing you can do if you're a single mom listening to this is to understand the differences between dad style parenting and mom style parenting. Dad style parenting is not well explained. Understanding, for example, the connection between roughhousing and empathy, roughhousing and postponed gratification, understanding the value of teasing and also how important it is that you're there so the teasing doesn't go too far. Understanding the value of risk taking. So all those things, when you let a man know that you see that he's needed for these natural propensities that he tends to display, men come when they are needed, when they're wanted, and they disappear when they're not. Make sure your son gets involved in what I call the liberal arts of sports, team sports, pick up team sports, which is perfect preparation for being an entrepreneur. You set your own boundaries. You pick people from the beginning. You discover who works and who doesn't work. And then also sports where you are the, the primary person to stand out, like in tennis or in gymnastics or downhill skiing. You're part of a team, maybe the emphasis is on you. In those liberal arts of sports, all of them is important, but also attend them often enough to find out which coach is likely to be the type of coach that you'd like to have be a good role model for your son. Let the coach know that your son does not have a, a good male role model involved. Most coaches will bend over backwards to be uh, more involved. Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts. Cub Scouts, a lot of proven data showing that what all of us and every mom that I've ever spoken to cares about, which is the character development of her son, is enhanced enormously by consistent involvement in the Cub Scouts for two or more years. Boy Scouts has deconstructed masculinity in such a way as to reward boys with merit badges and many, many rituals that lead to boys having that sense of purpose and doing well. So take a look at the part of the boy crisis that talks about the importance of checks and balanced parenting. Value mom what you contribute and also value what dad contributes and know that your differences are not a sign that you need to be divorced, but your differences are exactly what your children need if negotiated in a way that allows both of you to hear each other without becoming defensive. To the extent that there is a popular movement around trying to help boys and men in this way, um, you're the first person I thought of and you, you wrote the book. 
Um, are there others? I, I feel like now I'm one, <laughs> yes. which, which I appreciate. What, what does the landscape look like? I'm curious as to what the, the state of this particular conversation is. First of all, I would say read forward, read Leonard Sachs's Boys Adrift, read everything that Michael Gurian has written on boys. These are some other people as well that have really contributed in this area. Um, I hope the boy crisis, I spent 14 years researching and writing, and I am very solution-oriented in the boy crisis. I, I made a commitment to myself to say nothing that I couldn't solve. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and I know you're very solution-oriented as well um, and very data-based as well. Okay, so I'm guessing when you come out with this book, there are a lot of people that immediately had a negative reaction. They try and paint you as something of like a conservative, men's right activist type, even though your background suggests that you are very much not those things. And then you have been working since 2018 for the last number of years. You've championed a council or a committee on boys and men at the White House level, which apparently the Obama administration was not interested in. Um, you're still championing that proposal today, right? Yes, yes, I am. What has your journey been like as uh, one of the most prominent people to make this case? Uh, first of all, I'm more politically liberal than I am conservative, uh, although I often say to my friends that I'm going to write a book called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Yeah, a lot of people feel the same way. <laughs> when I went around and did the um, interviewing of the presidential candidates, um, uh, two or three of the campaign managers said, you know, Warren, my candidate really likes you, but we can't afford to alienate our feminist base. And the single mothers, if you tell them that boys are doing badly, they're going to feel criticized. We, we can't risk that. And I felt so deeply sad. And when you when you formed the forward party, in the back of my mind, I said, um, he is feeling the pressure. Can't say this you, if you're a Republican. You can't say this if you're a Democrat. You're now free to be able to say what you really feel. And when you came out with the the Washington Post op-ed and the, tw the tweets that suggested that there is a real problem with men and boys. I felt, you know, maybe that was an example of that. As I started speaking on this issue, a number of people from the White House did spot me and they asked me to come to the White House to brief them on the boy crisis book. This is in the Trump administration. Continue. The Trump yeah. administration, right. And I did. And they brought in people from HHS and from DOJ, Department of Justice and presidential staff. And they listened really attentively to um, what I had written in the boy crisis and briefed them on. And then they asked me to write a speech that President Trump might give. And I did do that. What didn't completely surprise me, because I had seen this already, is that the conservatives were expressing a much um, greater consciousness of the importance of mothers and fathers, the importance of family. And they had a sense of boys were having a lot of challenges. Even though I was not a fan of Trump per se, I saw a much greater receptivity on the part of, of conservatives toward this issue. I saw much less interest on the part of Democrats, unfortunately. I had some hope when Biden was running for office that he was forming this gender policy council. But unfortunately, the gender policy council was focused only on girls and women and not on boys, not on men, not on fathers. And I've spoken to Jen Klein about this, who is the co-chair of the gender policy council. And her response is, oh, President Biden is a father. He cares about being a father. He cares about men. Uh, don't worry, Warren. But I do worry because you don't you, know, you don't say I just care about something and and create no policies 
So for example, men, as we both know, die five years sooner than women on average, and they die sooner of 19 out of the top 20 causes of death. But there is no federal office on men's health. There is seven federal offices on women's health. Really, it's unconstitutional. It's a violation of equal protection. You, you and I are definitely raising the red flag, being like, hey, guys, boys need help. Men need help. People are struggling. Outcomes are terrible. Uh, and one of the points of my Wampo op-ed was like, hey, if men fail, it's going to be bad for men, but it's kind of bad for everyone because, you know, like, uh, and, and the most conspicuous examples of male failure, unfortunately, are going to be violent. Uh, they're going to uh, be destructive. Um, one of the points that I made that you probably heard is that if you have a lot of men who are in their basements uh, being subject to toxic ideologies, some are going to be radicalized, some are going to show up with with uh, firearms in a country that has hundreds of millions of firearms uh, and, and do terrible things. So like all these problems are tied together and this is not mutually exclusive. It's like, look, if you want organizations that help women, I'm all for it. Uh, you know, like I, I think that maybe men should also have the benefit of the same kind of uh, empathy. And by the way, a lot of the problems that our country should be most concerned about are related to male failure. Absolutely. I got a, um, about eight weeks ago, I got an email from somebody who said, I read your boy crisis book. It was really helpful to me. As a result of that, I did not uh, kill myself and I did not do the mass shooting I was planning to do. I wrote a 52-page manifesto about the mass shooting I was planning, but I was brought up by a mom and I was brought up by two aunts and a grandmother, and none of them had any men in their lives, and I had no man in my life. He hated his mom, and by extension, he hated all women. And so he then ended up getting involved with 4chan and 8chan, which are basically neo-fascist type of groups. In 8chan, two of those people in 8chan have already committed major mass shootings. And I said, well, what attracted you to 4chan and 8chan? And he said, now in retrospect, after I read The Boy Crisis, what I'm seeing is that I had no structure. I had no father figure. I had no sense of purpose. Well, look at this. You saved lives. Uh, hopefully, I, I mean, it's tragic that it has come to that where your book about uh, the crisis among boys might have spoken to someone and I uh, kept them from doing something terrible. One of the things that I've found about angry men or angry women in the couples communication workshop, anger is vulnerability's mask. Most every time you see somebody that is angry, you can ask a different question. How are they hurt? What is their vulnerability? And if you ask that question, you begin to listen to their pain. And when you listen to their pain, don't argue with them about their pain, but just let them know what you hear that they said, and you will see an enormous reduction in their anger. That's the way to deal with angry people, not by making them into horrible human beings that you hate, because hate met by hate only increases hate. That's an incredibly profound lesson and exactly the kind of thing I, I want to make the customary reaction via forward. So you are fighting for uh, a White House commission on men and boys. Is that right? Like, what is your current cause and work? And how can someone keep up with you and support you? After you've had a chance to read The Boy Crisis, let me know what is of value to you about it. And then I will work with you to be involved with the coalition to create a White House Council on Boys and Men 
or encourage you to be involved with helping boys. There are so many things that are potentially happening in school, potentially happening in mental health. There's an inventory of in the book of 63 red flags of uh, depression and suicide. Uh, you can help bring that into schools. You can teach young men how to communicate so that they become prepared to be great fathers that can communicate with both women and their children and teach their children great role models of communication. There's so many opportunities out there and, you know, and, and really follow what you are doing um, because you are the only national political person that understands these issues and you've articulated so much of it in forward and um, and really get involved with your campaign and make it happen. Oh, wow. Well, that's so kind. Right back at you, Warren. Thank you for making me feel not crazy. (laughs) 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 Dr. Warren Farrell, the author of The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. He's a very, very solutions-oriented human, and the book is as well. Thank you so much, Warren. This is maybe the most important issue in American life today, uh, and it's not going anywhere. Um, so you and I, I'm sure, will will have plenty of chances to make common cause. I look forward to that very much. <laughs>